Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We are broadcasting right across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. Now, I guess you've heard the expression that just being on par with your competitors in terms of price and quality only gets you into the game. If you want to win the game, you've got to give awesome service. Products, products are very similar. It's service that makes the difference. Now, we work with companies around the world to help them produce awesome customer service. And most companies are not only not awesome, they are pathetic. We have companies come to us and say, yeah, customer service is really good. And when you go out and speak to their clients, they all say their customer service sucks. And it happens nine times out of ten. So a company's perception of their level of customer service and the reality are two very different things very often. Now, there are two aspects to customer care. One is to provide awesome service and the second is to add value to every interaction with the customer. And the key to provision of exceptional service lies in the quality of your company's people management. You know, a recent 10-year study by Sheffield University in England demonstrated that people management and customer service is three times as important as research and development in improving productivity and profitability and six times more important than business strategy. So your people management and your customer service is absolutely critical. Now, for successful management, a high EQ, not IQ, EQ, which is a measure of self-awareness, self-control, motivational ability, empathy, social skills. That's more than twice as important as intellectual skills. And these skills are also essential to creating a customer-centric culture in a business. The first step in developing an excellent customer service culture is to hire the right people. You know, many businesses believe the the only people that need to have great customer skills are those on the front line. That just simply isn't true because it's surprising how many of your team actually deals with customers. If you look at our business, for example, our clients not only speak to me, they speak to a number of other people in the company throughout the course of a project. They might This might include receptionists, researchers, graphics people, all sorts of people. And all members of our team, irrespective of their role, must project the same enthusiasm for the client that I do. We've all got to be on the same page. And in our case, they do because that is part of our company culture. If you look at your own business, you might be surprised at how many of your team come into contact with the customer. You know, if, if, if you're a plumbing company 
and your the people, your marketing people, your management are fantastic and they do everything right by the customer and then the plumber turns up at the door with his bum crack showing, that affects your business. You get tainted with that. So do all of your staff and all of your um, contractors all share the same customer values? Because if they don't, your business is at risk. One of the reasons that Amazon has achieved exceptional brand equity is because it's really empowered its customer service representatives to do absolutely anything to satisfy the customer. I mean, if they need something, they can even go down to the local bookstore to buy something to satisfy a customer. So they'll go that extra mile. One of my favourite sayings, and I've said this over and over again, I know, but it's actually easier to change people than it is to change people. If you've got somebody who sucks, no matter how much training you give them, they're going to continue to suck. So you need to employ people based on hard skills but make sure that they have this a smile, customer skills, and a good attitude. You can teach them the technical skills, but if you have to teach people to smile and be nice and to like people, that's both internal customers and external customers, you've just chosen the wrong people. Hire people who like people, people who are empathetic to other people's feelings. Because the best customer service is delivered by people who see things as the customer sees it, not how the company sees it. Now, every organisation has two types of customers. They have internal customers and they have external customers. And it's important to remember that to maintain a highly cohesive and motivated workforce, exceptional service is... is It's just as important with internal customers as it is with external ones. That way you create a really nice harmony and feeling and and, um, intuitiveness amongst your staff. Coupled with a good environment and a shared vision, great internal customer service in turn influences external customers. And if any of your personnel do not have a great service attitude, replace them before the customer spread, the cancer spreads. You know, just get them out of there because they're not going to improve and they're going to do you more damage than good. A customer-centric company culture begins with leadership. It's important to realise that developing great customer service in your company, it's not as simple as holding a seminar and saying, this is how it's done. It's not about rote learning. It's not as simple as step one, smile. Step two, would you like fries with that? That's not how it works. Before you can begin training, there must be a culture change. Training without culture change and a genuine example set by the executives will be met with cynicism and distrust. For example, a lousy, absolutely appalling example of leadership by example 
comes from United Airlines today. Boy, after what the CEO said about that poor customer that was dragged down the aisle, why should anybody in the company do any better? That's the way the CEO looks at it. That's the way we're going to look at it. It's a disaster. And the problem is that United today lost $1 billion off their market cap. $1,000 million taken off their market cap because their customer service is absolutely appalling. Now, the problem is that most people who go to a training session get hyped for a short period and then immediately revert back to their old ways. Now, to be effective, we've got to continue training and we must lead by example. Employers need to set an example by doing and saying whatever it is that needs to be done. You can't be an effective leader if you bark commands or produce a thick rule book. You can only get effective leadership by leading by example and building core values. And where these values mirror that of the employees, you'll be successful. So just a couple of tips on customer service. Hey, stop what you're doing. Listen up. Put your cup of coffee down. Now's the time. This is a very important message for every business. If you want to stop leaving money on the table, if you want to make sure you maximize the amount of money you get out of your product or service and keeping the customer absolutely delighted, you need to set your prices right. Price is unbelievably important to making a profit. So go to Atenga, A-T-E-N-G-A dot com. I'll do that again. That's A-T-E-N-G-A dot com and download a free ebook called Seven Easy Steps to Successfully Increase Prices. It's a quick read and it may be the most profitable thing you've done all day. My friend Per Sofas, who owns the company, says that irrespective of your business, he can get your investment in a tenga back in as little as four to six weeks. The other 46 weeks, you're going to be making much more profit and be much more successful. So do yourself a favor, go to atenga.com right now. Did you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers, and I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for the newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read every day. Well, I must admit I'm fearing a bit because sometimes it takes a minute, sometimes a minute and a half. But it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that is important. So when your boss takes you out to dinner, if you've been reading it for the last 30 days, you'll have 30 pieces of absolute wisdom of things that are happening right now. You'll know the background story and you'll be able to converse with him and he's going to walk out of that dinner going, wow, that guy's smart. He knows a lot about a lot of things. And before you know where you are, you'll be on in the C-suite. Promise you. Now, I don't know whether you've been watching retail, but 
the situation's rapidly deteriorating for America's bricks and mortar retailers. Nine major retail outlets have already filed for bankruptcy just in this last three months. Gardman's, Gander Mountain, General Wireless, which was Radio Shack, HH Gregg, BCBG Max, Azaria, Michigan Sporting Goods Distributed, Eastern Outfitters, Wet Seal, Limited Stores. There's a heap of all filed for bankruptcy and have closed stores. Now, that volume of filings matches nearly the whole number of retail bankruptcies in all of 2016. So just in the last three months, we've exceeded the number of bankruptcies retail for the whole of 2016 and puts the industry on pace to exceed the numbers even in the Great Recession. So they're falling like flies and confirming that even more retail defaults are imminent was the following numbers coming from Morgan Stanley, according to which in the first quarter there were nearly 2,100 store closings, nearly double the number from Q1 of last year. And last week, Payless Shoe Source filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection and the company plans to have liquidated sales for 400 out of 4,400 unperforming stores that are earmarked for permanent closure and intends to try to renegotiate leases. The default rate amongst US retailers will jump to 9%, equivalent to $6 billion worth of debt. All these Chapter 11 bankruptcies are heading towards the highest annual tally since the Great Recession. Now, based on Moody's portrayal of their debts, there are another 10 major change with over 5,000 stores that could fail in the not-too-distant future. And you think of the repercussion effects. Malls across the country are struggling to stay open as stores inside their malls are closing in droves. And the more that fall over, the more difficult it is to find replacements for lost tenants. You know, over the last few years, most of the emptied store space has been taken by restaurants, entertainment spaces, movie theatres, hair and nail salons and fitness studios. But there's a limit to how many of them can go in a mall. And if store closures continue, it's hard to imagine there could be a solid supply of stores to take over maybe another 3,500 locations just this year. So things are getting dire in retail. My guest today is John Liversay. Firstly, he's a great guy. He's a medal member. He's a top sales expert and he's a funding strategist with over 20 years experience. He, he hosts the successful pitch podcast with investors from around the world and is the pitch mentor at startfest.net the number one accelerator in upstate New York. John gives startups the pitching secret to become irresistible to investors. And have a listen to this for a great line. John is the author of The Successful Pitch, and he takes startups from invisible to investable. 
I love that. In fact, I like John so much that I've actually taken two projects to him for his advice. And uh, listen to this. It's very wise information for all entrepreneurs. And I'll talk to John about investing after this short break on the Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Where over the past five and a half or a bit more years, we've given you insights into the lives of I don't know, somewhere around 350 of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about what they do, what um, the challenges that they faced along the way, and we talk about um, how they overcame those challenges and try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to be successful in business. Failure rates up over 95%, and so the 5% that do make it are obviously doing something right. So, if you're an entrepreneur or a business person in general out there, then you should um, buy as many books as you can by people who are successful and read articles about them and uh, listen to segments like this where you get some pretty good tips on what you should do and what you shouldn't do. John Liversay is a great bloke, another metal guy. Uh, he's a top sales expert and funding strategist with over 20 years of experience. He hosts the successful Pitch Brought podcast with investors from around the world and is the pitch mentor at startfast.net, which is the number one accelerator in upstate New York. You know, for those of you who have made pitches to one investor or a group of investors, it's a challenging task and uh, there are ways that you can do it that are successful and there are some simple things that you can do that really screw up those presentations. So John gives startups the pitching secret to become irresistible to investors and that's what we're all looking for. Now when John works with startups they become master storytellers so that they can inspire investors to join their team. 
John has been featured by both Entrepreneur and Inc. and is the author of The Successful Pitch. And this is a great expression. John takes startups from invisible to investable. That's really clever. I wish I had a thought of that. John, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. Well, thanks, Bob. It's great to be with you. Now, most entrepreneurs that you speak to, I, I have entrepreneurs come to me almost every day, as you do, and they all say, we have got the next billion-dollar product. It's the be-all and end-all. It's terrific. And uh, they think that if their product's good, then that's all that they need. Um and that's far from the truth, isn't it? Your, it's, it's interesting, your view that uh, investors say to invest in the jockey and not the horse. That is so true. Yes, um, they tell me all the time that, you know, if you if we give you 10 minutes to pitch in front of our angel group, don't take five minutes giving us a product demo because that's not how we decide who we give the money to. So that big aha for a lot of founders, especially first-time founders, is oh, you're investing in me and my team more than my idea? And the reason is that the idea will probably pivot even after you've been given the money. And it's re- it requires a team and a founder with a strong vision, a big market, and a unique solution to a problem that's being solved more than the bells and whistles of what the particular app or product is doing. I find so many uh, entrepreneurs that come to me are either solo and don't have anybody around them or they've got brother Jimmy and cousin Freddie and somebody that they met along the way that have no real experience in what it is that they're doing. That is a goof, isn't it? It really is, Bob, because investors want to see that the team ideally has worked together in another startup. That's the dream team for them, right? right? If you've been together, you have a working relationship, and you even have a successful exit, well, that makes it much easier for the investors to say yes to that team because what the investors really care about is getting a three to five return on their investment in three to five years. That's the unspoken question that they have in their head. How will this fit into my portfolio? But more importantly, is this team wide and deep? In other words, are both the founder and the co-founder marketing experts but no one's a tech expert or are they both tech expert and no one knows marketing so they're looking for a team that has complementary skill sets not the exact same skill does that make sense yes it does so i've got a i'm out there i've got a product and i think it's pretty good uh how do i first make contact with investors how do i go about doing that well you know Investors tell me they see about 2,500 pitches in a year and fund 25 of them. 24 of those 25 come from a warm introduction. Yes. So you really need to get a warm introduction. One investor told me, if you can't figure out a way to get an introduction to me, you probably can't figure out how to get to your customers. So that's one of the things that I really offer is once you have a great pitch from working with me, then I'll make the strategic introductions to the right investor that's funding your type of startup, right? If you're a fintech investor, there's no reason to show a pitch that's all mobile and shopping related and vice versa. So that's the other thing is people really need to do their homework on what kind of investments does this particular investor like to fund? And really, if you're smart, you take it an extra step and talk to the people that they've funded and see what they're like to work with. So you do as much due diligence on the investor as they're doing on you. 
Yeah, I think the problem with that is that most um, entrepreneurs that I know get sick of knocking on doors at about the 50th door and uh, they would take almost anybody if they've got the money. Well, you know, that'll, that'll bite you in the butt at the end. It really will. You know, angel investors can become devils. Venture capitalists become vultures. You know, you can, you know, give up too much equity just for the money and then you get voted out. So you really need to make sure that who you're taking on fits your culture. So first of all, you have to define what your culture is sure. for your team so that you can see whether that investor is a good fit or not. Yeah. So... I've found my investor or my group of investors, so I'm going to go and see them for the first time or mm. before I see them. I would probably, they would probably ask me for a, um, some sort of a PowerPoint, a deck on what my product is. How much do I disclose to them at that point? I haven't met them yet. How much do I tell them? Well, in the pitch deck, there's two kinds of decks, one that you send without you presenting and another that you send when you pre- that you use when you're presenting. The one that you yeah. use when you present has even fewer words than the one that does. But either way, don't put too many words on those slides. That's the biggest mistake I see over and over again is no one's going to read a bunch of text on a slide. So you want to the whole goal of any pitch is to get the next meeting, just like dating. You want the next date. Right? Right. So get them and you know give them enough that they say, "Ah, this person has intrigued me enough to want to meet them and take some time to have a conversation with them. So that pitch deck has to be clear, concise, and compelling of who do you help, what problem do you solve, how big is this market, what's your barrier to entry to competition, some financial projections that make some sense so the investor can see how you think, and then really making them say this is the right team to execute this idea, so I really want to get to know them. Yeah, a lot of... um a lot of entrepreneurs want a D- an NDA signed and a lot of them are afraid to disclose too much information because they're afraid that they've, they've got a patent pending or something and they're afraid that somebody mm. is going to steal it from them. I come across that quite often. Um, what, are you, what are your views on those? The minute you ask an accredited investor to sign an NDA, it's a no. They're not interested in stealing your ideas. It shows that you're a rookie um, because it's all about the execution of the idea, not the idea. So you need to not only be an expert on your idea, but what the competition is doing and how you differ. And, you know, investors are going to probably ask you, well, what's to prevent someone from stealing this idea or getting funded before you and growing faster? So you need to have thought that through. The classic example, I think, is Uber and Lyft. Yes. Right? There's nothing proprietary about that, right? They both do the same exact thing, but it's all about who got the funding faster, who executes it better, who's got better branding. It's the team behind it. So that's really the more important than your idea. That's an interesting example because um, Uber got off to a flying start, but I think in the longer term, my money might be on Lyft. Well, Lyft have done some really smart things, like donating, I believe, a million dollars it was to the HRC when Uber was getting some negative publicity about uh, how they were treating certain people. So, yeah, it's a it's a marathon. It's it's not a sprint. And they're they're also working on the different types of um, of vehicles, um, particularly with autonomous vehicles, um, mm-hmm. so that they can give. 10 different people, 10 different experiences to, to fit their needs. Um, so 
I've now sent my deck to the to the potential investor. What's the next step? If they like it, they will then take either a phone meeting or an in-person meeting. Your ideal scenario, which I did for one of my clients, Cole Smith, is to get them in front of an angel group. Right. We are given 10 minutes to pitch. And then, Bob, this is the real thing that most people aren't prepared for, the 10-minute Q&A. Right. So that pitch is important, but so is the Q&A. And what I do is I give my clients the questions they're going to get asked and prepare them for the answers, such as, what's it cost to acquire a new customer? If you don't have those answers ready and thought through, you're going to get a no. Right. Um, and so you can't be defensive when you get asked a question either. Sometimes they're testing to see how coachable you are. So you need to really have some skills on answering the questions that you get asked. So I tell people, make sure you understood the question properly. The biggest mistake people make is they're nervous and they don't hear the question and they answer something that the person didn't ask them. Then the investor thinks you're being cagey and it's a no. So I like to say, what I heard you say was, or let me rephrase that to make sure I got it right. Is that the, yes, that's the question. And then you answer it. And if you really want bonus points, then you ask the investor, did that answer your question? Right. So most entrepreneurs that I find um, know a hell of a lot about their product, but they know very little about how to market it. And uh, they really haven't thought through that area much. And it's that's the most difficult area, really. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that inventing a new product isn't difficult, but actually finding customers for it and being able to continually roll out those so you get more and more, that's hard. So when the potential investors ask questions, mm-hmm. they usually don't ask about the product itself, do they? It's usually about no, it's, it's there. what are you going to do with my money? Yeah. And one of the big mistakes people make is the top down thing. Oh, if we only get 1% of all the people who live in China to buy this, we'll be rich. And you want to go bottom up. I'm going to spend this much money on marketing, I'm going to hire a sales force, and we're going to hit these milestones at three months, six months, seven months. This money will last us 12 months or 18 months. And so they, you've thought through how you're going to grow it. Uh, and that there's a strategy in place. That's why it's so important if you're the tech person to have a marketing person on your team, if not the co-founder, so that that person has that expertise to bring to the party so that you've thought through um, what you're going to do. To And one investor said to me, if you're selling dog food, I want to see the dogs eating the food. Right. <laughs> so proof of, proof of concept, right? Yep. You know, you're asking people to change their behavior, So another example is Airbnb, right? You're answering two questions when you pitch. Why you and why now? So Airbnb would not have been successful had the economy not been in trouble in 2008. People wouldn't have been willing to rent out their home or their room to a stranger. Yeah. Uh, And the same thing with Uber. You know, if we all, the majority of us didn't have smartphones, that wouldn't work. So you really, timing is really important and that you know why now is the key to get the investor to pull the trigger now. Another problem that comes up very frequently with entrepreneurs, I need to project financials. Now, I've just invented this cup. How the hell do I work out how many of my, well, you know, there's one way what we usually do is go out and um, conduct, if it's a consumer product, um conduct some research among consumers and you find that four out of, you know, one out of 10 would definitely buy it and two out of 10 may buy it and X number. And so you can extrapolate it out. But how do you actually come up with something that doesn't look 
too small that the investor's not going to be interested in or too big where they turn around and say, that's just bullshit. Right. It, there's a fine line between that. You know, yeah. most projections are a hockey stick projection. Sure. And, um, you know, the New York Angels, for example, which is where I sent Cole Smith, and he got uh, an offer uh, for the 700000 he was seeking pre-revenue. Um, they send all of their deals and due diligence to this consulting firm who looks at the financial projections to get their input. So what I've done is develop a relationship with that organization, and I have my clients show their financial projections to that consulting firm that the angel group uses before they even get in front of the angels. Because what they're really looking for is how you think. Right, that you, and if you, the more experience you have, obviously, the better it is. So you need an expert to look at those financials and say, "This is unrealistic. Um, you've underbudgeted here, overbudgeted there. You'll never grow that fast. No one ever has." One of the big mistakes people make is they quote try to boil the ocean. Yeah, yeah. So you know, pick your lowest hanging fruit. Pick one thing you do really well and show how that's going to grow the company before you start talking about all the other things. My favorite example is Amazon. They just sold books first. Yes. And got proof of concept on that. Yeah. I think they probably developed as they've gone. I'm, <laughs> every day must wake up in the morning and say, gee, there's another hundred areas I can now tackle because everybody else is so bloody useless. <laughs> he, well, you've got proof of concept. You've got the system in place. Yeah. And, you know, if you 10x your business, the thing that probably falls down is you as the founder and your systems aren't in place. So that kind of thought needs to really be put into financial projections so that if things did take off that you, you know, for example, I interviewed uh, the founder of UGG, you know, the, the, you know, sheepskin uh, and shoes. And, you know, he had a marketing problem where he was showing models uh, in his ad and the surfers that were using it to keep their feet warm after surfing in Malibu were saying, those girls in the ads clearly aren't surfers. Right. So he had the wrong message to the right market. So right. then he got uh, up-and-coming surfers because he couldn't afford professionals to be in the ads. And the business took off. So he needed funding to meet the demand. Yeah. But, you know, because if you don't meet the demand and you've got all this advertising, then people will get mad and not come back. So you need to be prepared of what you're going to use the funding for. Okay, so I've got the nod. I've got 10 minutes in front of mm-hmm. a, um, a funding group. What's the allocation of that 10 minutes? What makes a great pitch? Well, you really only have 90 seconds in the, the first 90 seconds, even though they give you 10 minutes. You've got to grab them. I say grab their heartstrings so they'll open their purse strings. Our brains are wired to go, oh, another pitch, right? So you've right. got to give me something that I've never heard before. That a, a statistic or something that I'm like, oh, what? This is something new, right? Uh, and then you get people right away out of that into the imagination. Imagine there was a way that you know people wouldn't have to wait in line in Vegas in the hundred degree heat at a convention, or that you wouldn't have to stand in the rain in New York praying for a cab to come by that never comes by. Well, you don't have to imagine it because we're going to, you know. So that's how you would paint that picture for Uber. So that's. That's that's the official hook, right? Don't talk and make people guess what it is you're doing. You got to get right to it. You know, here's how big this problem is. I've personally experienced it, or whatever your core issue is that makes you uniquely qualified. That you pull them in right away, and then get them into here's the big problems we're solving, and here's our unique solutions, and here's how big this market is, and then if you have something to show of how you're doing it, 
any kind of look at your financials, the competition, you know, maybe a grid that shows where you are compared to the other people. And then, of course, the team slide is the most important slide, in my opinion, based on the feedback I've heard. Yes. Why this team is uniquely qualified. Tell a story again around you and why, you know, your story of origin, why you're so passionate about this. It has to be more than just making money to keep going. And then anybody else who might be on your advisory board that's, you know, that's involved, any, you know, letters of intent, any kind of traction, it doesn't have to be revenue. And then you're asking what you're going to do with that money. So that's, that's 10 minutes. You can see how a product demo is not a big part of that. And again, the goal is to get the next meeting. Okay. When asked, most people say that they would rather die than go out and stand in front of people and speak. Mm. Um, which I find amazing, you know, being a speaker and you're a speaker yeah. as well. I, I don't have any trouble with it. But um, what are the secrets to increasing your confidence before you walk out there in front of a room full of people that have heard everything before? Well, Arthur Ashe said it best, I think. The key to success is confidence and the key to confidence is preparation. Right. So you need to practice your pitch. Uh, and people say, oh, I don't want to do that. I'll sound robotic. I'm like, no, you're not memorizing it, but you're practicing it. And then you need to practice it in front of strangers and see if they understand what you're saying. Because your friends and family are like, oh, yeah, I've heard it. It's good. You're good. You need to really say, oh, did I lose you there? Did I confuse you there? So the other secret I have for building up your uh, confidence is something I call stacking your moments of certainty. Right. which simply means you write down three or four things when you knew you nailed it, right? You interviewed for a job, you got an offer. You um, went and got a customer, they said yes. You asked somebody out on a date, you got the second date. Put that in your head as you're getting ready to go into the room as opposed to the negative self-talk. Sure. Uh, they'll never invest. No one else has said yes yet. If I don't get this money, I'm going to go out a bit. You know, any of that will cause your confidence to plummet. So when you stack your moments of certainty and you're prepared – and you get those butterflies in your stomach, which is really just adrenaline, to fly in formation, right? Yeah. Get all your self-focus off yourself. I think part of the reason people get so scared is they're worried about do people like me and the judging. You make it about them and not about you, and that'll also really help your confidence. Right. So storytelling, I know from my presentations that um, when I tell a story, people remember it. I have people coming up to me that saw me 20 years ago and say, I still tell that story that you told about whatever it was um, because they remember that. They don't remember the figures. They don't remember all the peripheral stuff. So can you give us an example of how storytelling helps increase sales? Sure. Um well, first of all, it's again back to the, how our brain is wired, right? When we sell, talk about numbers and give people things to compare and contrast, that's the left side. We're analytical. We've got our arms crossed. We're going, hmm. But if I say, let me tell you a story, right. you relax, right? It's the right side of your brain. Then you're in your imagination. Maybe this will even be entertaining. And the real secret to good storytelling, Bob, is to put the listener in the story with them. So if you're telling a story and someone can imagine themselves on that journey, especially when you're telling a case study of here's somebody else who is just like you. They were struggling to get their revenues up. They didn't know how to pitch. They were stumbling through the pitch and they were nervous and they were confusing people and worse, they were boring people. And I took that person from stumbling to soaring, from confusing to clarity, from boring to inspiring and when he did all those things with a great story of why he was so passionate about this startup, the investors all wanted to fund him. Does that sound like the kind of journey you'd like to go on? 
then people are like, yes, because that they identify with the struggle that person had and they realize that if I could take that person on the journey, they might want to go on that same journey. Okay, so I've, I've given my presentation and there's 50 people in the room and five have come up and said, look, I'm really interested in talking further about this. Mm. What's the next step? Well, the next step is to really, you know, while someone's really interested, get that booked in, right? right? Like, okay, great. I've got my phone here. Let's book a time for a phone call or coffee, right? And ask them, what was it about my pitch that really resonated with you? Get them to be specific because that's the gold that you can then feed back to them. Like, oh, I really like that you're keeping our schools safer or that you're helping low-income students with their math problems. Whatever it is that you're solving, um, or I really like that story you told of, you know, how you were in the Amazon jungle and had to survive. And that tells me that you've got somebody who's got tenacity, right? So figure out what it is about your pitch that made it interesting to them and, you know, continue to build that relationship. You know, the big thing is if you want money, ask for advice. And if you want advice, ask for money. <laughs> Fair enough. Right? <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that. I never thought about it before, but it's, it's, it's really true. You want to have collaborative conversations. You're like, here's my idea. You've heard my pitch. I'd love to get your opinion on how I can make this even better. More collaboration, less about the money. If you say, oh, I'm glad you like my pitch. Where's your checkbook, right? Then they might start giving you advice. Like, you know what? I think you're too early. I think you're too late. But if you start, you know, asking for the advice first, you haven't, they're like, I like this person. Uh, I'm collaborating with them. I could really see myself not just investing, but having a part in growing this. Hmm. So what are the, what are the red flag no-nos when you're, you're in a, you're a, an entrepreneur, you're talking to an investor. What are the absolute throw up a red flag? I shouldn't take this guy's money. Oh, okay. So from the investor's standpoint, right? Uh, so when you're doing your due diligence on the investor, because there's lots of red flags that you get the red flag by, as we talked about, asking them to sign a non-disclosure, saying you don't have any competition, saying you're only getting at 1% of the market. So assuming you didn't do any of those mistakes, the things that uh, the red flags when you're talking to a potential investor is uh, if they won't let you talk to anyone else that they funded, okay. right? If they're, sure. they're keeping that, you know, most people are happy, you know, they're happy with that relationship, right? They, uh, and if they start to um, make you feel less than, they treat you with less respect than you want, right? Because this is the dating part, right? If, you know, it's just like in dating. Someone shows you who they are, believe it the first time, right? And right. like, oh, well, maybe they're having a bad day. No, no. They're a jerk. They're going to be a jerk now. They're going to be a jerk six months from now. And they're really going to be a jerk when they give you their money. Right. So uh, if they start... You know, there's a different way to ask someone a question, right? You know, I'm curious, have you thought of this? As opposed to, oh my God, you know, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I bet you haven't even figured out what your competition's doing, right? Whoa, you know, that's a red flag. Yeah, okay. Now, there's an old saying that I've always found to be true. And the saying is that the best way to destroy a business is to take on a partner. Um you know, partners always have, at some point, um, a divergence of opinion. It's it's extremely difficult to work in business with a partner. So, what should you look for when you're taking on people to be involved in your journey, or 
investors to take on as partners? What are the most important things to look for? Uh, shared values, mutual respect, and an ability to clear the air with c- good communication. I think that's the key to any relationship, personal or business. And then that that person shares your vision and is very clear that even though they have some ideas and money, that it's still you are the ultimate decision maker based on equity ownership and all that other stuff. So I think that's really the three criteria I would recommend. So how do you how do you determine um, what interest in the business you should offer to an in- investor? I mean that that's got to be difficult when you've because the actual value of the company. Um, mm-hmm in real terms is a hell of a lot less than what you think it is because of all the work you've put in it. So how do you decide if you're asking somebody for 100000 or a million or whatever it is, what equity in the company they should get for that? Well, it really is an art. It's not this exact science. Um, and one of the best things you can do is have really good people on your team and really good people on your advisory board. Right. That, that helps um, negotiate, get your valuation up. There's all kinds of methods. You know, there's a Berkus method of evaluation. Your early money is going to be your most expensive money. You're going to have to, because that, whoever comes in early is taking the most amount of risk and therefore they want the biggest upside. So you just have to realize that. Uh, popular now is convertible notes. Yes. Where you're not, you know, coming up with a fixed value right at the, you know, at the moment, and that it changes as the company grows. Um, so there's, you know, there's a that's a whole separate uh, topic. But I think being reasonable and you know doing the math and understanding, like if I ask for ten percent and a million dollars, then that gives my company X, you know, valuation. And what's that based on? Um, and not just your own perception. It's kind of like selling a house, right? It doesn't matter what you think and how much sweat equity you put into the house. It's what the comps are. Yeah. So from a from an investor's point of view, would they rather an equity position or um, or a convertible note? Which is which is the most popular? Which is well. Uh, I think some people are willing to do convertible notes because they realize. Um, that things change and, you know, you know, things get diluted and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it really is all how experienced the team is that determines how comfortable the investors are in what their initial uh, offering is. Right. Okay. So let's talk about um, John Liversay for a minute. <laughs> I would imagine that for most entrepreneurs, certainly nearly every entrepreneur that comes to me, Consulting with you would be an enormous benefit. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm sitting out there listening to this show thinking, God, I need all that knowledge and that um, all those techniques to be able to get investors. Is it going to send me broke to hire John Liversay? Well, you know, I think if you're starting any business, you need to have some capital, either from friends and family or your own money. Whether you're opening a bakery, you still have to buy the supplies. So the biggest mistake people make is putting all their money uh, on a patent or hiring all these lawyers, you know, to get all everything set up. And you need some of that. But the number one reason people go out of business is lack of customers and then lack of funding. So I say you have to invest in learning this ecosystem, right? It's a dance, it's a language, and you can try it on your own or you can hire me as, think of me as a Sherpa. So I charge $5,000 to work with people for 10 one-hour one-on-one sessions to get their pitch right, to get them you know, practiced and 
with the answers that they need, all of the things, and then start making strategic introductions to investors, getting offers, and then ideally getting more than one offer so I can help them through that due diligence process. So do you help people actually get in front of Pasadena Angels? or Yes. Mm-hmm. So you actually do that as well? So yes. Because I find, I find for most entrepreneurs, trying to find investors is a very difficult um, task. Well, I've interviewed, uh, I've interviewed over 100 investors from different um, angel groups and VCs on my podcast, and they tell me every day, bring me good deals. Yeah. And if you introduce me to somebody, we're going to trust that they have a good pitch because you're the pitch whisperer. So that's what I have to really say to people. It's not just the introduction. It's having the good pitch to get the yes. For example, I interviewed Ben Nazarin in Silicon Valley, and he said, yeah. I like to see the team slide as the second slide. Well, that's not the normal order of a slide deck. Sure. But now he, I know that when I connect people who he likes to invest in artificial intelligence and big things like that, that we go, let's make sure that team slide is the second slide on the pitch deck because that's what Ben wants to see. So it's knowing all those nuances that really make the difference to get them to say yes and get the next meeting. What are your views on um, crowdfunding? Oh, I'm a big proponent of equity crowdfunding, not the rewards crowdfunding, but there's one called dreamfunded.com started by Manny Fernandez, who is also an accredited investor. He was on CNBC's Make Me a Millionaire Inventor. Um, And now that the laws have changed since May of last year, you don't have to be an accredited investor to invest. And you, uh, it really helps people uh, get their startup out there. But again, in crowdfunding, you have to bring your own crowd. Yep. So social proof is still important. Um, if you're trying to raise in, you know, $100,000, $500,000, you need to show that you're almost halfway there from friends and family so people go, oh, there's some traction here. Uh, and again, the story is equally important. But you can do rounds now with uh, dreamfunded.com and an angel group. You know, one can raise 250 and an angel group goes, okay, then we're in for 250 and now you've got your 500. So it's really changing the way things are done and I think it's fantastic. And you give advice on crowdfunding, Kickstarter, etc. as well. Yes. I mean, I usually just work with people who need 250 and up. Right. Um, so the uh, rewards, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, that's Indiegogo, that's typically under that amount. Yeah. So that's not what my specialty is. I'm equity crowdfunding, angel investing, and VC investing. Okay. John, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You can learn more about John Liversay at John at SuccessfulPitchPodcast.com. And I advise everybody who's an entrepreneur to go and find that five grand because I think it will make one hell of a difference, not only right now when you're out there looking for investors, but for the rest of your life. So um, it's a great $5,000 investment. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And we are 
proud to be the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. This week broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment. One of our readers, Colin Fabig, sent in a wonderful dissertation last week about democracy and government, which I discussed on this show, and I also included it in my daily newsletter. And I was not surprised by the number of people that supported Colin's comments, which were pro-meritocracy, but I was staggered by the number of angry, aggressive, insulting emails I received. We're in a democracy, and if you can't accept well-thought-out, reasoned arguments and have to get abusive, do the world a favour and shut up. Don't listen to this program. Don't read my daily newsletter. In short, fuck you. Now, your Amazon Echo or Google Home could soon be used to make voice calls with both companies hoping to make this an option as soon as this year. Because ordering takeout is so annoying, right? You have to grab your phone. You have to click stuff. I mean, it's all too hard. Alexa and Google Assistant to the rescue. Now, since Google's already been operating Google Voice for seven years, they're likely to have a much easier time enabling phone calls. As for Amazon, the report says they're considering a few options, such as syncing to the user's existing phone number or giving each Echo its own phone number. Oh, boy, that's when we need another bloody phone number. I can, you, know, you need a pad three inches thick just to put down your um, passwords and another book to put down your phone numbers. Now, Walmart's fighting back against Amazon's e-commerce dominance and it's enlisting help from the startup world by considering investing a billion dollars into Flipkart, which is India's largest on line retailer and one of Amazon's biggest rivals. Flipkart, valued around $15 billion, sells everything from electronics to apparel to housewares. In January, the company was rumoured to be planning an IPO. Now, this hasn't, isn't the first time that Walmart spent billions to gain market share. Less than two months ago, the company spent $3 billion to buy Jet.com, a New Jersey-based e-commerce startup that had positioned itself as a rival to Amazon. The deal was meant to help boost Walmart's online business, which has struggled to gain much traction against Amazon, the leader in online retail, as we all know. They own a, they've got about 35% of the total online market, which is incredible. Now, Walmart's generated about $14 billion, billion in annual e-commerce sales compared with Amazon's $99 Billion, so it's what nearly seven times seven times bigger. Now the investment in Flipkart could go a long way towards helping both companies gain a foothold against Amazon. An investment from Walmart would not only um, help Flipkart fight Amazon in India, but would help Walmart fight Amazon on its home turf. Flipkart's uh, facing mounting competition in India from Amazon. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos said in June that the company plans to invest another $3 billion in India, adding to the $2 billion investment the company made a couple of years ago. Now, Flipkart's confirmed that it's raised $1.4 billion in new funding at a post-money valuation of $11.6 billion. The company also announced that eBay will make a $500 million cash investment in and sell its eBay 
business to Flipkart in exchange for an equity stake. So that's all interesting. Now, we've got an amazing product that just might save the planet. Two scientists at the University of Colorado have invented a thin, flexible strip of material that could spell the end of AC units. This film can cool buildings without the use of refrigerants or electricity. And the amazing thing that it can be made using standard roll-to-roll manufacturing methods at a cost of just 50 cents per square metre. Now, roll-to-roll processing is a process where you create electronic devices on a roll of flexible plastic or metal foil. So it's a, it's a process called radiative cooling. The Earth's atmosphere allows certain wavelengths of heat carrying infrared radiation to escape into space unimpeded. If you can convert unwanted heat infra, into infrared at the correct wavelength, then you can put it into the cosmos with no comeback. Now, this isn't the first time that someone has tried to cool buildings this way. However, it is the first time a solution's been presented that's cost-efficient enough to be manufactured in quantity. This could represent an amazing solution. Nearly 6% of the electricity generated in the US is used to power air conditioners. When you think of all the industry in America, to think that 6% just to generate air conditioning. Jeez. And many other countries are not far behind. That makes it expensive for consumers and more importantly, it contributes considerably to greenhouse gas emissions. Hey, again, I ask you to stop what you're doing and listen up. This is a critical message for every business. If you want to stop leaving money on the table, you want to maximize your profits without pissing off your customers, go to Atenga, A-T-E-N-G-A dot com. That's A-T-E-N-G-A dot com. And download a free book called Seven Easy Steps to Successfully Increase Prices. It's a very quick read. Very interesting and may be one of the most important things that you do all day. And it's not expensive. If you get a tenger to look at your pricing structure and they adjust your prices to maximize your revenue, you'll get that investment back in four to six weeks. Now, tell me what else you can do to increase your profit 48 weeks in a year for just four to six weeks investment. I can't think of any. So go to attenga.com. I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read. I'm sure you'll find it really interesting and we'll keep up to date with all the business news that is important. Now remember, you've really got to push the envelope. It's difficult to be successful, but you've really got to push the envelope. And if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Now, I've got about 10 seconds left. So just before I go, remember to call John Liversay. Spend that five grand. It could be the best investment you have ever made. And next week, we'll be back broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard, where technology meets entertainment, and I hope that you can join me again. 
In the meanwhile, please continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.